1: brought to you by exodus trail cameras the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation and now here's
0: your nine-fingered host dan johnson Alright everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Visit exodusoutdoorgear.com and take a look at all the trail cameras they offer. And when you are posting the pictures that you received this summer of your Velvet Bucks, post hashtag VelvetFest and uh, I think they're going to do some random drawings or, or at least uh, share your picture. But uh, check out exodusoutdoorgear.com. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking with a gentleman by the name of David Hand. David is the CEO, owner, helps run the company Slash Arrows. And if you don't know what Slash Arrows are, it's basically an extension of your arrow that has two mechanical blades in it and a broadhead screws into the tip of that. So it's basically... Two mechanical blades inside of an aero shaft so it's pretty unique it's pretty different than anything else that's out there on the market and um, what intrigues me about this podcast is the research that they went through to test this product to test different types of broadheads on the market and penetration and sharpness and angle of the blades and the the results of that research are what we discuss on this podcast and ultimately the development of this slash arrow and uh david kind of walks through that entire process so it's uh it's a pretty unique uh podcast Again, from the from the uh, research and development side, from just data collection on uh, how manufacturing works, and you know the the launch of a, a completely new and different type of product that's uh, nothing else that, uh, that's out there on the market. So that's what today's podcast is about. Um, if you're a gear nut, you're gonna love it. I know I'm a gear nut, so I love listening to not necessarily how the product works and how it was designed but I think my favorite part about these types of podcasts are there. there's an idea that somebody came up with and how they turn an idea into an actual product and that story in itself kind of intrigues me whether it's you know the invention of the automobile or the invention of the slash arrow so stay tuned listen to that now we got a big announcement I am I got a new partner on the podcast, right? And it's one that I've I've gone after for honestly quite a long time because, because I think it's a really good fit. And I think once I say the name of this, you're going to know why. So I would like to welcome Hunter's Safety Systems to the Nine Finger Chronicle family. Um, they make safety harnesses. And if you guys know how I close this podcast... I'm telling you right now this company and this product are a perfect fit. So uh go visit huntersafetysystems.com. Uh, take a look at all the hunter the the safety harnesses that they offer and I'm telling you right now um it's a it's a great company run by great people. I've had the uh, opportunity to meet uh a couple of them and uh I really think that you guys would like their product, first of all, and it's kind of a necessity, right? So if you're a tree stand hunter or if you're just a clumsy ground blind hunter, it might not hurt to have one either. But uh, if you're a tree stand hunter, man, hunting with a safety harness, if you're not doing it, you're a dumbass. I'll just just—I'll just say it. Um, you need to be wearing a safety harness because if you're not, you're being selfish um, because you could get hurt and your loved ones uh, – may not have the person, you know, You worst case scenario, you end up dead or paralyzed. And there are several stories out there um, of people who have been hurt because they've fallen out of trees. And uh, all you have to do is buy a safety harness. And a great company to start with is Hunter Safety Systems. So go check them out. And uh, there's obviously going to be more to come. And as soon as we get all the details of this partnership, ironed out you're going to be receiving a discount as well so as soon as that happens i'll let you guys know and uh, you can go buy a hunter safety systems safety harness now i've talked enough i'm going to watch these lightning bugs in this bean field for a little bit before i go in and edit but uh hopefully everybody had a great weekend it's monday let's get the party started this week with our good buddy david hand all right, on the phone with me today, I have a Mr. David Hand. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing great, Dan. So, I got a, someone that it must be uh, your wife or uh, a relation to you, Laura?
1: That's right. That's right. If you, if you call this number, uh, she'll pick the phone up more than me.
0: I got gotcha. you. Okay, so is that your wife then? Yes. Okay, so she reached out to me and said, "Hey Dan, um, I got a guy you might have on your podcast." It kind of gave me uh, gave me your credentials, and I'm just like, "Yes," because I absolutely love. What it is that you do and what you've done as far as like research and stuff. Uh, last week on the podcast, um, we had a guy who did research and data collection for deer movement over twenty over a 20-year period. And um, it, that was just an exciting episode. But now we're kind of transitioning the data and research for this podcast into gear, which a lot of people geek out um out about as well so i'm excited for that but before we get into this entire episode all the meat and potatoes why don't you tell us where you're from and what it is you do for a living
1: yeah i'm from uh houston texas um born in austin texas lived in texas you know my whole life and you know we're fortunate that uh you know we have lots of wild game down here to hunt Um, as well as, you know, a lot of exotic game that was, you know, imported in the early 1900s. So we virtually can, you know, hunt year-round. You know, like many of you all, I have a a day job, uh, but this is my passion. Um, You know, I'm in the investment management business, uh, working for a big bank and run a trust company. But uh, 10 years ago, we decided we'd get in this space because of just the, the need to do something that's more effective.
0: Gotcha. And and describe what that space is.
1: Yeah, we, uh, we had a client uh, down in South Texas, and uh, they were running a pretty large ranch down there for cattle, um, and they decided that they wanted to only allow folks to come on that ranch and bow hunt. And, you know, before that, uh, you know, I was a lifelong bow hunter and taught five kids how to... Hunt and we hunted on, you know, several properties, but I got to watch probably from a professional level, you know, that's where I entered my career where I got to see a lot of professional hunters using, you know, all sorts of different types of bows, and at that time, you know, the newest crossbows were coming onto the market. Um, So that's where I got to see the professional side of the business, you know, uh, lots of shots. You know, the ranch was having to take about 150 Uh, deer off of it a year to manage it under the mld program in texas and so you can imagine over a decade of you know harvesting 150 deer a year we got to see probably every shot angle um every type of shot you could make with almost every type of broadhead bow crossbow uh you know that's out there
0: gotcha so that so before we kind of transition into that your your quote-unquote real job or you know is in the financial sector right Yes. Okay, but you also are partial owner of uh, a company called Ballistic Aerotech and Slash Arrows, correct? Correct. Okay, and so we are. I want to. I want to get in and talk about all this research that that you've done. But before we get into it, I got to ask: down in Texas, how was your how was your hunting season this past uh, year, two thousand and seventeen?
1: You know, we had a good, I had a good season this year, uh, you know, because I'm in the hunting business, uh, I have to spend more time working during the hunting uh, season, so for the since I've owned this company and been in this business, I actually hunt less, but the few times we got out, uh, you know, my daughter has actually taken the largest deer, you know, the last couple of years in a row, I guess I'm the guy that ends up, uh, you know, rattling, and uh, we certainly like to hunt in the middle of rut, where we can, you know actually rattle horns down in south texas and get deer to come up so um we had a good season i did i did shoot one 150 class deer uh you know with the newest crossbows uh which was exciting for me uh but we, we had a pretty good season i was still you know in a little bit of a drought in certain parts of texas
0: gotcha now do you take any other trips to any other states during the hunting season
1: yeah, the only other states that I hunt in, and we can talk about that, is because I was educated in Alabama. I'm an engineer and went to school at Auburn University, so I still have lots of friends in the South Alabama part, so we get to go to Alabama and, and uh, hunt you know, at least once every other year, so I enjoy hunting in Alabama. And occasionally, you know, we've made it out to uh, you know, Colorado. I haven't shot anything up there, but we've had some beautiful hunts up there.
0: Gotcha. I'm actually heading to Colorado in September for my second ever archery elk hunt. So uh I'm getting excited uh I'm getting excited for that.
1: Well, I can tell you you gotta get used to the elevation. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh you know, it's it's an enduring trip. I mean the last trip we took were, you know, ten days on horseback, uh, you know, at twelve, fourteen thousand feet out of Gunnison. So you have to be in some pretty good shape and yeah, you know, that's right during the juggling season if you go early.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm uh I am training right now. I have uh, a routine uh, like a workout routine and I had a r- workout routine last time too but when I got to Idaho I straight up got the elevation kicked my butt uh, there as well so I'm, I'm a flatlander from Iowa so we you know, walking upstairs is as much uh, elevation change as I get
1: I understand the only advantage you have is if you drive you can take a couple of days to get acclimated to it
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i think that's our plan is uh is going to do that so any any other states any other hobbies that you like to do other than uh bow hunt
1: well you know my background is is that uh, you know like a lot of folks you know I, i was a mechanic you know all through um high school and college and and um you know then was fortunate enough to be able to go to engineering school. So I still like tinkering with mechanical things. That's probably why I have the patents in the space and the other areas that we work in. But, uh, you know, added lifelong guy playing the guitar. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of cool things going on in the acoustic guitar center that I'm involved in. And then, uh, you know, lifelong water sports for scuba diving, fishing. We use this device for spearfishing and we have patents on that as well. And then, um, you know, surfing—you do a fair amount of that down here in Texas when we have a storm come through. So, uh, you know, water sports and uh, fishing and hunting is probably what I'd, I like to do.
0: So you're, you're you keep busy.
1: Try to, you know, you <laughs> just have to—you always have to get ready for that next hunt or that next trip or swim laps to be able to go on that next surfing trip. You just—you just, uh, you know, just got to always be doing something. To stay active.
0: Right. Mountain bike
1: a little bit, but we don't have a lot of hills here like you, Dan, in Iowa. where it's pretty flat in Texas.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. So you're an engineer and I know some engineers and I, I can almost generalize how their brain works because it doesn't really shut off. They can pick up a pen and they don't see a pen. They see parts of a pen. They see how it works, how it can be made better. And I all, it's not just a pen to them. It's like, it's deeper than that. And if I had to guess the way you look at archery equipment is kind of the same way.
1: It is. I mean, you know, the thing is, is you get a long look at it. Uh, You know, if you if you sit in a ground blind or up in a tree stand, uh, you know, for four or five, six hours, any piece of equipment you look at, you've probably dissected it a hundred times in your brain. Right. Right. Uh, You're right. Engineers do that, and you know, we're kind of we're the folks that walk through the grocery store and throw a bunch of stuff in the basket and. When we got to the counter, if we were off by five or six cents, we would be disappointed.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what got you in to, you know, you're an engineer, but what got you in to wanting to start a ballistic aero te- tech company and slash arrows? What was the, I guess, what was the thought process behind that?
1: You know, the thought process was, you know, we were down in South Texas, and, you know, I could only get off work on the weekends, occasionally during the week, and we had lots of professional hunters come through there. When I say professionals, a lot of hunting clubs, a lot of folks that are on television, and we got to see lots of different shot angles on, you know, white-tailed deer primarily, but we also hunted a fair amount of hogs, and... Uh, it just amazed me that you know sometimes you'd make a shot. I think we've all experienced this, and it would go forty or fifty yards, and then you seem like you would make the exact same shot at the, out of the same tree on the same ground line at the same distance with the same piece of equipment, and the animal would run you know four or five hundred yards right uh, you know so we started really thinking, and I say we a group of us started thinking in terms of why doesn't the era perform like a bullet and um you have to sit back and think about that for a minute um but if you've ever taken a, a really really long shot on an animal and seen the delay of, from the time that the um you know the, the bullet hit the animal to the time there was the second blast you know the percussion right you know um you know many times it was that that's that eternal expansion and that second blast and the timing of it that actually was the most effective part of taking that animal down humanely. Um, and then if you started thinking about ballistics, you start thinking about expandable bullets, uh, you start thinking about weight, and you start talking about momentum. not uh, I know everybody thinks in the terms of kinetic energy, but just You know, what's the difference between a Volkswagen going 60 miles an hour and hitting you, and then let's just slow that Volkswagen down to a Mack truck going 50. You know, what's going to do the most damage? So, you know, the folks in the rifle business have known this for years, and um, we just haven't quite, it it just wasn't connected. And at the time, Dan, we were trying to bring crossbows into Texas. And, you know, we knew we were approaching that 400 feet per second. We knew we were approaching long-range shots. Uh, We knew that we had a predator problem here in Texas where if you wounded an animal, the coyotes would chase it for endless amounts of time until it expired. And then we knew that, you know, the folks shooting the crossbow wanted to have an experience like a rifle. So that was kind of the thought process, and, you know, we needed to innovate.
0: Gotcha. So, had the companies even been started at this point, or was this just like a twinkle in your eye at, the, at that point?
1: You know, I can I can remember it like it was yesterday, and I think we've all had kind of this light bulb moment in our life. And I always have to remind people that when you have one of those light bulb moments in life where you see something entirely different than it's ever been seen before, you know, I think you have a responsibility that I what are you going to do with that information? Right. And so in 2010, you know, I had this idea that said, I wonder why nobody's thought about the era actually having long blades inside the shaft. And then I said, I wonder why anybody ever thought about that maybe the weight should be behind the broadhead rather than on the broadhead. And then I started thinking in terms of, why shouldn't things expand internally? And then I started thinking about, you know, if the weight was distributed in the arrow shaft over five or six inches rather than on the tip, then it wouldn't have the stress of the spine and the reaction and all the problems we have with accuracy. So all those things kind of were stirring around in my mind. And so fortunate enough that, uh, you know, my son's an attorney and I sat out and said, you know, no, it, it, it you know, did a patent search. Nobody's ever thought about that. Nobody's ever done it. It's a completely white sheet of paper. And so before we made anything, before we did anything, we knew conceptually it would work. And we were fortunate that, you know, we filed it with the patent office. And uh, at the time, it a micro entity. Um, and they allowed an accelerated process. And so we got it back in 14 months.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, backtracking just a bit, when you said you you've got to see all these hunting pros come and shoot uh, their arrows, this was a, a a ranch that you were working on or owned or something like that. That like a, a, an outfitter, right?
1: Well, we had we had really three phases of this ranch. It it was uh, down in South Texas. You know, it was a really large ranch that needed to be managed. And so it started out that the rancher, who was my client, owned the surface rights. And he wanted to, you know, take the deer off of it in a humane possible way, but he didn't want the liability of guns. And so it first started out as a dailies, you know, where he advertised in San Antonio and Houston and on to all the archery clubs. And it had three old houses that we had rebuilt. And we would just bring down groups of hunters for two and three days at a time. And they would just pay a fee... A flat fee per day to hunt there and of course if they kill a trophy buck there's a small additional fee but that's that's how it started and so we ran it that way for several years and then we went to let's lease it uh, let's break it up into several smaller lots and lease it to some folks that are bow hunters only gotcha. so that you know i kind of watched it go from a, a day hunting place to a place where it was hunted for weeks at a time by professionals for purposes of doing films, to a full time lease with two or three different groups of hunters that were bow hunters.
0: So at what point did the research at Rice University take place? Was that done before or after Slash Arrows was started? It
1: was done before. before. So okay uh, what we what what we did, um as I had, I, If you recall, if you go back during that time period, 2010, 11, and 12, and 13, there were some, some folks at ATA that had uh, undergone a study uh, in California at some of the universities on some of the devices that they had created. And so, you know, I was watching some of the stuff going on at ATA, and I said, you know, one of the ways to grant, gain credibility is to take an idea to a university for study. And um, so how it ended up at Rice University is I took it to, first of all, where I went to school, and I took it to the University of Texas, and most of your state schools, and I think the audience needs to notice, if you take an idea to a state university, unless you have a lot of language around it, sometimes the state can end up owning part of the patent or part of the research that they do and getting a royalty. So generally, it's better to do it at a private university yeah, but in order to go to a private university, you have to be interviewed by the staff, and you have to be interviewed by the facility, and it's a pretty lengthy process. And so, you know, before the patent was issued, um, I just had this idea. I took it to Rice University, and they were keenly interested in making a big impact on this industry. They, they felt like, from an engineering point of view, especially with the crossbow, and we'll talk about the crossbow, and especially with the new cams that had come into the market on bows, that we could do a better job. Okay. I mean, that, you know, that we could do a better job of effectively, humanely taking down the game. Okay. Uh, and then the other side of it is is that there's a tremendous amount of folks coming in there from the youth side and also from the women, and then there's also a great number of people who can't pull back very heavy poundage are their short draw, and so those folks also they felt like needed a better device as well.
0: Gotcha. So the the research was based on humanely killing an animal, uh, not necessarily, um, I guess, making the equipment more efficient.
1: Yes, and so what what it what Rice wanted to do is is, is they have a different definition. Uh, as, as a hunter, you know, we would take a very good shot on an animal, wait 20, 30, 40 minutes, go take a look at the arrow, look where the shot was, and then we would, you know, in Texas, we have dogs that helped us track them, or we have trackers, and we would track that animal, and quite often, we would think that if that animal only went 50, 60, 70 yards, that was a successful harvest in that game. Um, they didn't accept that. What they really wanted to do is they wanted to have something that actually took the animal down within 5 seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Their goal was to have a device that would have the same ballistic characteristics at close range of maybe a 30-30, if the audience can relate to that. A a, a small entry, big exit, um, effective set of sequencing of trauma to set down the central nervous system to to provide high stratic shock Um you know they wanted to really they really wanted to change it entirely
0: gotcha, gotcha. all right so when you start a research project you know you kind of laid out the, the the main goal there but when you start a research project like this, there's, there's organization that has to be done on how you're going to be collecting this data, um, who's going to be um, doing the research. Explain that whole process.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, after we got to the university, they, uh, they assign a team of five members, and each one of the members brings a different skill set to the table. You know, you'll have a mechanical engineer, sometimes an electrical engineer, and then you'll have an industrial engineer. And then usually we get assigned, because we're close to NASA, we had a person that was assigned from NASA from the Space Center, which was really good in metallurgy, um, you know, ballistics. Uh, you know, the people at NASA are really good in payload capacity. They're good in velocities. They're good in all sorts of things relative to, you know, rocket launching, which has got some similarities to an era, and we'll talk about that. And then sometimes they will assign somebody from the team that because there's so much stuff done at MD Anderson and down here in the cancer center, they'll assign a doctor to the group or somebody that's, you know, familiar with, you know, the medical side of the business because we do a lot of work in the medical industry on, on innovation. Um, and then there'll be somebody in the group that's responsible for regulatory. So, you know, they'll go st- we, the first thing they did is they studied all the regulations in 50 states. That was kind of the outset, and then another set was we had to have a test center with the, you know the ability to photography you know nine hundred to a thousand frames a second so we could catch arrows in flight yeah. and then another person would go in there and then just simply bought every broadhead on the market that they knew of and started testing them and then every arrow and did combinations of those
0: gotcha so when when you had to go to the state level rules and regulations was that to determine whether or not a product like this would be legal
1: yes there were two objectives first of all the, um, the study group has no idea what your patent is. okay so they, they are independently in the first semester or the first year testing what products are in the market today you know, whether that be a mechanical broadhead, whether that be a fixed broadhead, whether that be a hybrid broadhead, but from a regulatory standpoint, it gives you quite a bit of insight. Uh, let me just throw out a statistic real quick. A lot of states, if you recall early on, required a seven-eighths inch broadhead, right? Right. That was kind of the the minimum fixed broadhead cut, and at the same time. A lot of those states mandated that you had to be able to pull back at least you know 40 or 45 pounds well you start doing the math on that a 7 8 inch three inch cut I mean a three blade broadhead at 40 pounds of kinetic energy that generally was kind of the perception of what it takes to maybe make good penetration or a pass through on a deer within 15 20 yards that's kind of the common sense side of those
0: regulations right okay so as this study kicks off and and people are in this team goes out and buys all of the broadheads on the market that you you know that you can get your hands on how many broadheads if you can remember did you actually test
1: uh the set was somewhere because i took my personal collection over there too and they bought some somewhere between 27 was in the initial test set, and then I think at the end maybe there were a few others that were tested.
0: Okay, so somewhere around 30, 30 different broadheads. Somewhere,
1: yeah, some, some, somewhere around 30 different designs were looked at, and, okay. and I would say out of the 30, 20-something of them were heavily tested. Okay, Being heavily tested would be ballistic gel, photography, photography, um, you know, through wood or through other types of substances or through even hide and even some animal bones and then okay. eventually tested on some hogs because we were in season.
0: Gotcha. In so 30 different broadheads um, that that were tested. What, what was tested, all right? What was the data that was collected when you shot these, you know, when you shot these broadheads you know, for and I'm sure you're aware of this, but for the listeners, um, and they probably get me. They're probably sick of me hearing this because I've said this on multiple podcasts. But when you're p- performing research, there's constants and then there's variables. And in this experiment, it sounds to me like the broadhead is the um, is the variable. Is that correct in me saying that?
1: Well, I, I think no. They, they they did they did test with some different arrows. And I think that that where they walked away, they would shoot they would shoot five or six they they would bunch them up into here are the three blade you know fixed heads here are the two blade fixed heads, here are the mechanicals, and here are the hybrids, and what they would do is they would look at the ones out of that test sample that were the best and breed out of that different classification okay so they would take a first pass at, at a you know a bunch of three blade broad. I'll use a three blade broadhead as an example, and they would walk away and say, you know, all of these three blade broadheads look to be a commodity except for these two, and these two seem to have the the blade slanted at a lower angle. They seem to have some characteristics of better penetration, um, but you know, holistically. You know, they all have pretty similar characteristics that are high-quality three blades. Okay. Um, and then they'd jump to the mechanicals, and they would, you know, take a look at those and, you know, how they deployed, whether they deployed, you know, an impact or whether rear deployment or forward deployment, and then they would kind of come out with best to breed those. And then they would say, well, here's a group of, you know, four or five hybrids. Here are the two here that we're going to, you know, really take a close look at.
0: Okay, and how did you determine that? How did you determine, you know, this these broadheads make the cut?
1: Well, it wasn't so much a make the cut. I think where they walked away with it is that if you take a three blade broadhead, a quality three blade broadhead, and you put it on a three hundred and forty grain arrow at uh, consistently at you know seventy you know foot pounds of kinetic energy. It, it was just a commodity, right? It just—they—they it, they all performed. I mean, one may go, you know, 7.7 inches in the ballistic gel, and the other one may go 8.1, one may go 7.4, but they—they they don't really spend any more time on it. They walk away saying, you know, those are all. There's no, there's no significant. They're looking for significant breakthroughs. Okay. It just, it just kind of, it proved, it proved to them that the fixed broadheads, the mechanicals on the tips. And the hybrids all were, in their, in their words, one-dimensional devices. They all weigh about 100, 125 grains, except for some of the big-game broadheads. You know, we can talk about those in different classification. But they basically you know, made differences, but nothing monumentally different.
0: Okay. And was this, you know, during this research, during this, uh, I guess, this uh, data collection period, was... Th- was your patent, the, the, what is known as the slash arrow, then on, or the insert, insert blade, was that on these arrows at this point or not?
1: No, no. The, uh, the studies took place in the summer, and the patent wasn't made available to the public until April. Okay. So they studied it independent of the patent, for the fur all the way through September to April. Okay. And so, you know, some of the things that they had determined before the patent came out were, you know, one, you know, a large cut, a large, for example, a large two inch cut maybe isn't as effective as a four blade cut that's smaller because it's more effective to cross patterns. You know, they were they were starting to develop some theories about um Large cuts, one-dimensional large cuts, maybe aren't as good from cutting point of view, of having multiple cuts and patterns. Um, The theories of skin tension, that you know, there's lines of skin tension in an animal, and you know, if you're shooting just a two blade, maybe it could rotate in the wrong angle, um, and it wouldn't cross enough, it wouldn't cover enough area, to. Cause enough damage to allow the shaft to go through and the fletching to go through, or possibly could get positioned incorrectly where it didn't cause the most damage. Okay. So they they started to have some some analytical data that said, and I, I think that there's been some there's a lot of tests that show this that the total number of inches of cutting surface maybe is more important than one just big large cut. Gotcha. Um, and that maybe. The, if the angle of the blades is at a low angle, you're going to get better penetration than it's at a steep angle, just because of the mechanical advantages of a low-angle blade to a steep-angle blade.
0: Okay. So, so what were the things? It, so at the now we okay. Let me. We go back now, and we the original. The original um, idea for this was to kill an animal more humanely. So in order to do that, right, we have to, like like you said, shut down the central nervous system, blood loss, um, and something else. But what were they tracking to then take that data and go back up against the original um, goal of that? I mean, were they checking penetration? Were they checking, like, the size of a wound? Were they checking – I don't know. What were they checking?
1: Yeah, in the in the initial part of the study, um, let's go back for a minute. They were noticing that the broadhead, and I think the audience knows this, a broadhead needs to be matched to the arrow shaft. Um, so their first initiation was, you know, some of the work uh, that Dr. Ashby did, if you remember, originally talked about front of center, the weight of front of center, And then um, there was more concentration on what's the actual momentum. And so uh, they, by the time the patents were issued in April, they had drawn the conclusion that um, a lot of the commercial arrows being shot today, unless they have a, a pretty big insert in it, be 60 grains, 80 grains, 90 grains, a forward insert, are really not designed... To maximize the momentum that needs to be captured to get more pass-through shots. That was that was the first, and, and you know they were drawing conclusions that, you know, when you get up above 380, 420, 430 grains, you get up into 10 and a half or 11 grains an inch, and you start putting more weight forward behind the broadhead. You know, you start to get really, really good increases in the momentum. Okay. You know, like, you're in, and I think you can see some new bow tests today. I think it's a result of that because the bow tests that came out just three years ago are tracking not only kinetic energy, but if you look at the chart below that, it has showed you, you know, like 12 or 13 foot pounds per second. And if you shoot a 480 grain arrow, it goes up to 15 or 16. Well, that's a huge jump in momentum. Right. And so they had started to come to that conclusion. And the other conclusion they came to was that on the crossbow side, there were going to be crossbows that were going to be breaking that 400 foot per second barrier and that those crossbows needed to be heavier to both dampen the vibration to help in the operation of those crossbows and really be able to capture the full velocity of that shot. Okay. Um, yeah. And then I think the other breakthrough they had was, you know, could you take a lighter-spined arrow, and instead of hanging 100 or 125 grains on the end of the tip, could you spread that weight over 3, 4, 5 inches in the arrow, have the, have heavier weight but not lose velocity? So one of the tests that really kind of that was a turning point was they took an arrow that was 11 grains an inch, and it fired you know, a a standard 11 grains per inch era, 300 spine, pretty stiff, pretty heavy era, all the way through capacity. And on our test bow, it was 292 feet per second. And then they took the same, and they took an arrow that was, you know, seven and a half grains an inch, but they put a 60 or 70 forward insert in it. And they looked at that and it traveled a little over 300 feet per second, but it was the same weight. It got better penetration. So they started to come in terms of Weight doesn't always equate to the loss of speed. Okay. You, could, you could, it's not, in engineering we look for something that's free in terms of what can you do that doesn't cost you a lot of downside. I mean, we all know we have to slow the arrow down. We have to slow it all the way down. But could we slow the arrow down and then pick up more momentum at the same
0: time? Right, right. So you slow the arrow down by adding weight but because you're adding weight you're adding more momentum
1: right but we're not adding the the theory that they came up with part of the paint. you don't add the weight on the tip okay you put all the weight on the tip of the arrow like for example let's say we're we're trying to shoot 200 grains. well if you put 200 grains on the end of a a 400 spine arrow out of a 70 pound bow with some radical cams it's probably not going to shoot real well you know it's going to torque that arrow quite a bit but if you were to take a, a 75 or 100 grain broadhead and then put an elongated, you know, 80 or 90 grains in the forward insert and distribute that weight in that arrow shaft, it would be a lot more effective, a lot more energy efficient.
0: Right. Okay. So, so that kind of falls right in line with your product, right? The insert blade. Right, because basically, what, right, right yeah. yeah, because
1: basically, the blades are inside the shaft and, and and they weigh a fair amount.
0: Yes, right, right. So, you know, the that product is a is an ins, almost like an it's it is the insert, right? It's acting as an insert. Then you screw the broadhead on the front end, and then you have a lighter, um, so it, it allows you to get away with a lighter grain per inch arrow on the back end, right? Right, right.
1: Okay. And the other thing we determined in our study, I forgot to mention this, and I think the industry used to make 75 grain broadheads that were 1 inch and 7 8 inch cut, and somehow we got away from that. And in our study we found it, it may be more effective to put that weight behind the broadhead rather than on the broadhead.
0: Okay, so does reducing the grains of that broadhead also reduce the strength of it
1: there are some materials that would tell you no it doesn't I mean you there 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 are some 75 grain broadheads that uh, you know were just as impact resistant as the hundred grains gotcha in fact we there used to be one uh, we had one that was shot years ago and they stopped making them as a 60 grain uh, you know I've seen some 60 grain seven eight inch broadheads made that were pretty strong flew well uh, you know, had some great durability characteristics okay I mean, uh, yeah
0: so after it was all said and done what was the outcome of this research what can you talk to us about what performed better um, or maybe even give some specific examples of brands um, for the fixed the mechanical and the hybrid that performed well in this test
1: Uh, Yes. Um, There were some three-blade broadheads that had blades that laid less than a 30 or 35 degree angle back on the shaft. I don't want to give a plug for anybody, but I think everybody knows which one that is. It was studied out of California. Um, And so any of the the three-blade broadheads or four-blade broadheads that had elongated blades that had low angle entry Seemed to do pretty well. We also seemed to, from a flight standpoint, we gravitated towards it was difficult to get perfect flight with real large fixed broadheads, you know, over an inch and an eight. You know, you could do it, but it seemed like the ones that were seven-eighths and one-inch and just a little over one-inch just seemed to tune a little easier, you know. Um, uh, But they didn't spend a whole lot of time on that. what they spent time on, and then on the mechanical side, um, it was just, it it didn't, they didn't open consistently, you know, more than eight out of 10 times. They just seemed like at a shot angle, they opened on impact and it seemed to, you know, take too much momentum out of the shot. They said that as the arrows got faster, it was difficult for a mechanical device to operate because if you think about it, it's traveling at 400 feet per second, a real high velocity, and it's hitting a solid surface. It, it, it just, it's fractions of a second to allow that mechanical to open symmetrically. And so while they could shoot them through some areas and if it hit soft tissue, it didn't open at all, and we actually experienced that in the field with some mechanicals when you shot right below the spine, um, Kind of in no man's land, we saw some that didn't open at all, and then when you shot bone, it seemed to not get the penetration, or in a large mechanical, one blade would open faster than the other, and you'd get some steering. Right. So they, they, didn't, they didn't walk away, and this is from an academic standpoint, they didn't walk away with, you know, a mechanical device on the tip has some, some probability of failure. Right. You know, in certain, in certain circumstances.
0: Right. And that that's kind of going against what um, you hear a lot from these mechanical broadhead companies, uh, because a lot of them say it's physics. It has to open. Right. It, It has to open. I mean, it's going it's meeting resistance and the blades fold back or they slide out or whatever it is that mechanical broadheads do. But it sounds to me like there there were instances in this testing that you know, mechanical broadheads had, not necessarily are high or low, but a percentage of failure.
1: Well, you have to define what failure is, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, not opening. They were, yeah, well, completely not opening. What, what they were looking at, too, they completed failure as one blade opens prior to the other and changes the directional axis of the arrow such that there's loss of penetration. Right. Right. And then you have to remember too that you may have a mechanical that does that and it's not a pass through shot and the animal runs a hundred yards and it and it takes forty five minutes to die. Um, a lot of hunters would consider that success, right? Well that's that wasn't that's not tolerated at the university level, at the study level. That's just not that's not the standard they were trying to accomplish. Right.
0: Right. Okay. So in, in in a way, this slash arrow or the the insert blade that you're talking about is in a way a mechanical kind of a mechan it's not a broadhead, but it's a mechanical blade, right?
1: Yes.
0: Okay. So now now you've done your research, right? And after the what What did you walk away with after this research was completed, uh, and how did that help you uh, i guess start the the process to get your company off the ground?
1: So um, we're halfway through the university study. Um, we've come up with some intellectual property to optimize broadhead designs, and so. Now we're talking in terms of, from a medical perspective, how do you infect a secondary shock? I mean, after a after broadhead hits, right, if you put the blades down the shaft three, four, five, six inches, and you allow you know, you know 150, 200, 300 milliseconds to pass, we're in this academic conversation in 2012 and 13, you know what happens could you what 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 what's the effect of delaying the opening of the blades okay we have a we, we take a, we take the best broadhead we can preferably a fixed broadhead because they're 100 percent dependable we don't have to worry about them steering uh, preferably the the broadhead that makes the entry can break the surface it can break the bone it can break the tissue um, you know it has good flight characteristics you know, it doesn't have to be much bigger than seven-eighths of an inch or an inch because we know that that only absorbs about 40 foot-pounds of kinetic energy, and most people are shooting 80 or 100, so we've got a lot of left on the table. So we started to think in terms, okay, now we have this patent, right, that allows us to position the blades anywhere in the shaft, and then we start thinking in terms of how do you make it where it's a very predictable mechanical device. That's kind of where we were in April in, in the study. So we started making prototypes um, and shooting animals, you know, April through the following hunting season with, you know, some of the blades are actually four inches long, some of the early prototypes.
0: Okay. Now, w- one thing that I was curious in is when I saw, when I saw these was – did when you started testing this product, did you test different places on the arrow where this product, whether it was the front of the arrow, the like a, the center of the arrow, or the back of the arrow?
1: You know, we um, we didn't test the back of the arrow. You know, back where the um, the fletching is. Right. Uh, we didn't go that far back. Um, we did test it. You know, forward, you know, um, and we found that if we put it too far forward, we weren't more, much better shape than if we were a broadhead, Okay. a mechanical broadhead. We, we wanted to, the, the further away we got from the tip, we, we, we found out that the arrow has to be stabilized, right? It has to hit the target and has to penetrate three or four inches. And then it has to take all of the what you would see in high-speed photo—the wobble out of the era. I mean, we all know that when the era first hits, there's a lot of whiplash going on. There's a lot of things going on. You know, if it's an angled shot, you need to you need to get into the target, and, and the era needs to be in a stabilized flight pattern, and it also needs to be in a the the mechanical needs to open, and in a uh, in a liquid state. Uh, it, it, things that open in water are a whole lot. More reliable than things that open in air. If you can think of it that way. If you were to shoot it into water and watch something open, it's more likely that when it's in a fluid state, things are going to happen symmetrically. You okay. know, the arrow's already on its path. It's already down its axis. It's already made a commitment to this is where it's entering that animal. Uh, so we wanted to move the blades back.
0: Okay. So does that mean that the the Once this arrow has penetrated this animal, all the momentum or the energy is now concentrated into this one location?
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You're right. You've concentrated the energy in one location, but if you look at it kind of from an engineering perspective on an X and Y axis, you're right. Once that arrow has gotten into the animal several inches, Barring the animal is not jump in the shot or you haven't hit a bush or anything else. You're right. Dan, that's a good way to put it. You've already decided what path you're going to go down. Okay. And your best your best way to succeed is to continue down that path. And, and focus your energy, you know, just right down the spine of that arrow. So okay. the more that that arrow can have that weight centered down the direct spine and axis of that arrow. The, the, and by the way, the whole goal here was to get pass-through shots, more pass-through shots. At low poundage, you know, we'll talk about the low poundage study we did in
0: a minute. Yeah, and that's kind of where where my my sets of questioning, you know, sets of questions are heading because I've seen this product before, you know, when I've gone to the ATA show and without doing any research, without you know, it's it's what people do, right? They look at something and they make assumptions, that, whether they know the the story behind it or not. I look at this product and I said. Okay, well, uh, once the arrow hits the target, it's going to slow down like all things will. But then when those blades deploy, it's going to release more energy from from the uh, from the the whole process of the arrow hitting a target. And it's going to slow it down even more, resulting in uh, not a lot of pass throughs. So. Tell me then why I'm wrong in that assumption.
1: Yeah, so what what we did is let's go back to the very beginning of our research study. Do you remember when we talked about that states had a minimum requirement of 40 pounds? Right And we talked about that the re, and that the states at the same time they were mandating 40 pounds of, of pull, they were mandating generally accepted practices 20 years ago was a three blade seven8 inch cut. I think anybody that's listening would know that that was kind of the predominant product. Okay. So, if you were to take, um, if you were to take an arrow, a light arrow, at 340 grains, and you put a very large three-blade broadhead on it that's sold today, one and three eighths. I'm going to use a three-blade as a standard set, and then we'll jump to two blades and four blades and hybrids and mechanical. but just. Stay with me for a three blade because i think it's the easiest thing to understand okay so if you take we took a setup at 40 pounds and we took a 27 26 inch draw at 40 pounds and we were shooting this arrow somewhere around 200 feet per second and the reason why we wanted to shoot at 200 feet per second was to be able to capture what happens with a low poundage bow what happens with a short draw and also at 950 feet per second, frames the camera facility that we had could really capture what's happening. Okay. And then in front of the ballistic gel, we would take some material that would would be fabricated to represent what we would consider a rib or light bone uh, composite material. And then behind and in front of that, we would put actually deer hide, you know, deer hide with some muscle on it. And if you take that 330 grain and you put a one and 3 eighths three-blade broadhead in it and you shoot it, and you shoot that over and over and over again, you, know, you keep getting you know seven inches, maybe eight inches, depending upon if you have a, a, you know, a broadhead that's got some laid-back blades, you know, maybe some elongated blades, a low angle. Maybe you'll get eight inches or eight-and-a-half inches. And the, the, the study was, here again, we're, we're shooting at 40 pounds. And so we said, you know, let's up that weight somewhere to the 420, 430 range so that we take our momentum number up. And I think everybody understands that.
0: That's your arrow but, weight, as uh, you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah a- okay. a-
1: arrow, arrow weight. And then let's take that big broad head off. Let's go back to where we were 20 years ago and let's take a 7 seven-eighths inch head. And so effectively, what we've done is we've dropped it, you know, from a one and three eighths, we've dropped it an eighth inch, an eighth inch, an eighth inch, an eighth inch. And I not to bore you with all the details, but for every eighth of an inch that you drop in the diameter of that three blade going into that animal, you pick up a tremendous amount of momentum and penetration. And then when you move from that, we all know this, when you move from that three thirty or three forty to that four twenty, that's 70 or 80 extra grains, and we put those grains, you know, again, behind the broadhead, same shaft but behind the broadhead, we start to pick up more momentum. So the combination of more momentum and a smaller broadhead on entry gives you a heck of a lot more penetration because then what we did is we followed it up with a 2-inch mechanical inside of the shaft, so you're saying, how in the world can a 7-8-inch broadhead with a 2-inch mechanical get more penetration than a light arrow with a 1-3-8-inch and fixed head? You start to understand the trade-offs there. Right. And then you have to remember that this is the delayed effect, right? So these 2-inch mechanicals aren't opening until they've already penetrated two or three inches so we get a free ride right the arrows past the bone past the height past the muscle so now we're in soft tissue so if we deploy these mechanicals in soft tissue we're way ahead of the game so what we found out is we could get better penetration with that than a lighter arrow with a standard broadhead okay and you have to remember that the three blade has already cut a one inch, a seven eighths inch hole, and now we're coming behind it with a two inch. So you've already bored, kind of like when you bore a piece of steel or you bore a hard surface. You always have to drill a pilot hole, right? Once right. you drill the pilot hole, the rest is history. Okay. So that, and so we have a. The study showed that you'd get seven or eight inches under that setup, and you'd get eleven inches under our setup.
0: Wow. So when that happened then was that just kind of like an aha moment like okay I had this idea and it the this, the the tests is showing that it's working and working well
1: Yeah I think the next aha moment was um how much of a delay you know right. um you know how mu- how much you can can you um put the blades back a little further um can you put a cam in them so that they open symmetrically? Can you slot the blade so that if you hit it an angled shot, the slot, you know, takes the impact rather than the arrow shaft? Um, if you can put the blades in the arrow shaft, can you put them at a 20 degree angle or 25 degree angle? You know, which is half the angle of a broadhead, so that you get a tremendous cutting advantage. Um, then one of the guys that was on our team was into samurai swords and you know knew a lot about the cutting power of of the early samurai swords you know so it shows could this thing have the shape of a samurai sword and kind of taper off at the end and what would that do you know so there was a a lot of those thoughts started to happen when we realized we could set those blades back and plus it's open space right because it's free because everybody has a drop away rest or if you even have a fixed rest there's the handle there where the bow is, and there's the broadhead. So you have kind of what we get considered free space, right? Right, there's three or four inches right there between where the arrow is resting on your arrow rest and where the broadhead is that you could encapsulate a device and it not be intruding to the customer. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. So what what happens? What happens next then? All right. So so now you have this idea, right? um and you see that it works right but just like any any product if you're going to try to sell it and make a profit off of it you have to educate the users right yeah how does that how did that so, work
1: yeah so we're we're at the university and you know I was really blessed and fortunate one of the kids on the team one of my young students um was a master machinist and um, so we had access to a good machine shop, good CNC equipment, and so we started making prototypes. And so, Dan, I can only kind of tell you what happened on opening day of 2013. So we have these prototypes. Okay. And we've been testing them on hogs and some access deer, but this is, you know, opening day of whitetail season. We're back down in south Texas. Um we're right in the middle of the drought. Uh, we have seven deer that have been shot for the first two of the season. And virtually all of them went a great distance, and we lost several of them. We had tracking dogs and the whole nine yards. And so we brought this device out to film it. And so the first, the first filming we did, we were concerned about, because we had shot you know animals from the ground and at level shots. We were concerned about elevated shots. And so we were taking some elevated shots, and we shot a deer, and it hit the top shoulder bone, which would have been traditionally with low poundage what we were shooting, not a very good penetration. The arrow goes completely through, the mechanicals open, and then on film we see this kind of, we see this white-tailed deer just kind of go into shock. I mean, it wasn't because it hit the spine, it wasn't because we hit anything, it just, when those blades opened, you're right, you thought he'd put the brakes on, this deer just went into a state of shock hobbled about you know two or three or four feet rolled over and was dead in 22 seconds and so you know we were like wow you know that's pretty phenomenal so um we had films with some guys that come in from out of state so we went to go pick them up and they said we've got this animal we want to get several camera angles on it before we shoot it and it was a gut shot i mean generally a Bad shot, and the way it happened is the deer jumped. Anyway, he dropped his quiver, and it hit the metal tree stand, and the deer jumped. We've all had that happen, and and so we got behind it, and then we saw that animal get this second dose of hydrostatic shock, and it went virtually two, two or three feet and and, and died. And so those are the. So from there, we were just like, "What are we going to do with this?"
0: Okay, so. Were you happy with those results then? When you started actually hunting with it,
1: um, we were we were really surprised. You know, you know, by this time we started to refine it. At that. At that point, the the product had a fixed blade on it. You know, in terms of it didn't really have the the camming action and the slides and all that. And so we were frantically, you know, you have. A period of time after you have your first patent to file a continuation so we were filing continuation today we have five patents and another continuation so we continue to make improvements in filing patents so we we still didn't think we had what i would consider a marketable product okay we had a prototype we were building them for custom arrows for a couple high-end you know hunters that were using them here in texas we were practicing on hogs so we kind of complete that season go into the next season and coming into the next season, um, you know I started running a commercial machine shop here in town. Uh, that's a client of mine, and we start you know actually putting the blades in the shaft and producing it under ballistic Aerotech. And about that time, um, Dan, you may have seen us at Innovation Hall in um, at ATA. We're, have you ever gone to Innovation Hall at ATA? Yeah,
0: what year was that again?
1: You know, we're looking at the thirteen, fourteen.
0: Okay. Yep.
1: And so, um, you know, Innovation Hall is kind of where new devices come, and and we were, we were really going there because we had the intellectual property tied up. We had a lot of things on film. We were really going there to kind of see what the reaction of the market was, and um, we also had had some some really big luck with killing some really big game, some red stag, because out of season, we were having to do some testing, and we're fortunate here in Texas that those animals reside here. And then we had some folks in New Zealand and Africa that had gotten some success on some big game with Safari Club International. So we had some traction. Okay. And um, the name of the company is Ballistic Aerotech, and the reason it's named Ballistic is just because we wanted to redefine what the ballistics were of an arrow um and if you recall about that same time i guess somebody was coming up with a device that was actually a bullet on an arrow you remember that
0: yeah i remember that yep
1: yeah so <laughs> you know it's kind of funny how things happen uh you know people were hitting our website thinking that that was us and when they were taking a look at the results and the these uh, pictures they were thinking oh this this guy's got a you know a 30 30 bullet on the end of an arrow <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, so you know, you, you so you you come back and you you regroup, and so we are real fortunate uh, that we met the right advertising people and the right marketing people, and at ATA, and you know, they approached and said, "You just got to change the name." I mean, there's just no way around it. You know, you need to need to change this name. Yep. So we came up with the name Slash.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So in. In the grand scheme of things, you're still a fairly new company, right? Only You've only been around for, what, four years?
1: Yeah, so we were Ballistic Aerotech, you know, kind of in the R&D stage. Uh, you know, like any company that has an idea and starts to get some penetration and get some notoriety, we, uh, we had the name Slash. And so generally when companies come out of a university setting with entrepreneurs, you know, you try to go to an offering, a private offering to raise cash and to raise equity. And so we took Slash, uh, got somebody from Rice University from the business side to be president of the company. And then we went to uh, the Houston Angel Group, which is similar to our Shark Tank, and there's one in most major cities. And so that's when we sold off 30% of the company and gathered, you know, 22 investors and then put together Slash and developed really, this would be our... This would be the second year that the product is in its same state. Okay. Uh, the first year, you know, the product was really, you know, a rudimentary product. It's innovative, but rudimentary in that it was just the blades inside the shaft. And today, you know, you can get them with different spines. They have replaceable blades. We've refined a lot. of least they've made them lighter and heavier. We entered the cross bolt market, which we think is absolutely huge. Uh, we introduced a little bit of a mechanical lock rather than having to depend entirely on the band so we started to refine it so this is really our second year in really the stabilization of the product
0: yeah okay so how has that kind of going back to that introduce introducing the product to the market what what were some of the initial feedback or first impressions that you got from the general public on this product
1: You know, um, my partner uh, at the bank did the the first Big Bertha golf club, you know, 20 years ago. And and he tells me, and I'll tell you what they said about the first golf clubs. Hey, it's too big. Uh, You know, you'll never be able to swing that thing because it looks too heavy. You know, the public's never going to want to buy that because it just looks so odd. And, you know, um, it's never going to give you enough club speed to provide any downrange with the ball. And, you know, the other thing is it's so big it doesn't look legal. Uh, Or, you know, the professionals really aren't going to like this because you don't have to practice anymore because now you have a big sweet spot. Yeah. And I say that because those are the same seven objectives that this product faced in the market several years ago. Too big, too slow won't get the penetration won't get the pass through um, you know just the same thing that the golf industry of course the tennis industry had to go through it too right We now have you know tennis rackets that are bigger and have bigger sweet spots
0: okay so so you've kind of had to overcome those scenarios um, but how have you done that I because if you show the science behind it people how, how do you get that science? For them to consume.
1: Yeah, the the first thing we did, Dan, is we repackaged the product. Okay. And, you know, the the product. You know, when the product first came out, we thought we were going to sell six or twelve arrows, and you know that puts a product north of a hundred dollars to purchase. And so we said, you know, this thing probably needs to be packaged like a broadhead. Let's just package it in sets of three, get the cost down to around the, the fifty dollar mark. And if you hear anything about innovative products people talk about the, the $50 mark being kind of the point at which, you know, people say, gosh, you know, for that much money, we'll try this. And so that, I think, has been the biggest thing to get it in more hands. I mean, I think that in time, you know, I mean, for every – our sales show that, you know, for every one person that had a success story with it last year, it they tell seven seven to nine people. Gotcha. So, you know, our following went from, you know, to just keeps going by multiples of seven, so – you do that over time and you you get a grassroots ability um and then you know the 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 archery shops and some of the stores you know they're challenged to have something innovative on the shelf Uh, we obviously thought that it's better to have it fully packaged so instead of having to go buy an arrow and then go buy some broadheads and decide what knock or what veins or whatever just sell it all in one package ready to go gotcha sell it broadhead on it you know we give away a good fixed broadhead with it you can put any broadhead you want on it but just we know that broadhead works we know it's a one inch cut we know it you know it's a three blade broadhead we know it's somewhat of a commodity but it's a good one and it works and we get penetration with it so just sell it right out of the box and so you know we, we that, that has gotten more people to, to look
0: at it gotcha okay so then it's 2018 um how has how have you seen growth uh since that point
1: you know, we've had, you know, this is kind of off-season. You know, last year, you know, our sales were a lot better than the previous year. And this year, our off-season sales exceeded what our in-season sales were last year. And, Dan, what we're seeing is that um, at uh, shows, you know, we, we've we gone to some consumer shows. Um, you know, it's just been phenomenal, the response. I think somebody has to actually put their hands on it to understand it. Yeah. And so the consumer shows have just been great. Um, and so that's what's pushing it. And of course we've done, you have to do a lot of things with online sales. You know, all your retailers want you to be online and some of your major, uh, distributors. Yep. We've had some good distributors that have been friends of ours that have helped us, you know, done well. So, uh, we've got a long way to go though. Got a yeah. long way to go. We'd like to get it. We're trying to get in the hands of as many people as we can.
0: Absolutely. Seems very interesting. And, um, so when you, when you purchase this uh this product it comes with air the arrow and it comes with the broadhead but if someone doesn't want your arrow or someone doesn't want your broadhead but still wants to use the uh the insert it is is it fully i mean does it work across the board with all products
1: absolutely and, and you know i you know there are so many good like i said when we did that study there are so many good broadheads on the market I mean, there are so many good broadheads that work on the tip of that arrow. Um, if you're shooting an arrow today and you're getting a pass through and you're getting lots of pass throughs, um, or you're shooting a light arrow and you want to shoot a heavy arrow, you know, if you've got a broadhead that you like, just stick with it. You know, um, if, if it's a large mechanical and, you know, you're concerned about hitting bone and you're not getting pass through, you're probably going to want to switch to putting a fixed broadhead on this era because it already has a mechanical that's going to open internally, yeah but there are there's so many good fixed broadheads out there, uh, and there are some mechanicals that can be shot with this if they you know don't take up too much of the momentum of the shot we do We do advocate one thing with this device we it does deserve a heavy era. It does deserve a heavy era. we We start thinking in terms of you know from a marketability standpoint. You know 10 grains an inch and up you know we have a product at 10 we got one at 10 and a half we have one at 11 we have one almost at 13 grains an inch uh, so we we favor and we also favor you know front of center not 12% front of center but we favor 14 15 17 18 even up to 19 uh, you know on our cross bolts
0: okay and then is this product legal in all states
1: you know, I, I I don't know the I don't know how there are some states I understand that don't allow mechanical broadheads.
0: Right. Idaho's one of them.
1: And this isn't a mechanical broadhead, but it does have a mechanical behind a fixed. And so I, I I can't speak for what Idaho would think if you put a legal one inch, three inch broadhead on the front and then. Yeah, you know, the mechanicals were in the shaft. Uh, I don't. I can't speak to what they would say.
0: Because Because te- uh, technically, it's not a broadhead, right?
1: No, it's not a broadhead. the the, um, the patents are filed under an arrow or an extended tip. Um, um, I just. I just don't know. Uh, okay. I just don't know how, how the how the states that have restrictions on mechanicals would react to this. Okay. Uh, you know, The. I, I know this, but some of the we were going to be on a podcast with the Parks and Wildlife Departments. They do favor it for purposes of taking game down effectively. Yeah. There are some some states that are using it in really heavy populated areas to take down deer because they don't want them to run very far.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I tell you, this has been a very interesting podcast, David. Man, I really appreciate you taking time to hop on. And uh, lastly, you know, if there are people, People listening to this uh podcast right now and they're they're interested in in this product why should they use this why should a bow hunter or a crossbow hunter use this product
1: you know dan i just i kind of go back to the beginning you know uh you know my grandfather and my father you know and we've all been trained this and we we hunted uh, the harvest animals um you know, we have the trademark on Bring Home the Game, and we simply did that because my mom and, you know, used to always say, Bring Home the Game. You know, in you know, and, and, and the eye of every beholder, you know, every animal is a trophy. And um, we, we, we like you, I know your show does such a great job in the legacy and talking about hunting and the importance of hunting and family. You know, we're always threatened about our rights to hunt. And, um, Part of my contribution is uh, i'll say this again is the hunter is really the only voice of the game we hunt and i think we have it in our capability now with these uh new cams on these bows and crossbows to you know to do some things we've just never done before
0: perfect perfect so if those for those of you who are out there listening uh if you're interested in slash arrows go to slash arrows.com and uh do a little bit more research David, man, I appreciate you taking time to hop on the podcast.
1: Dan, thank you. And and, and thank you for everything that you do for our industry and preserving hunting. It it means a lot to all of us.
0: Hopefully you guys enjoyed that podcast. I know I did. Uh, I love being able to interview, you know, people like this who have an idea and they turn it into a product um i I, I geek out to stuff like that so hopefully you guys enjoyed this huge shout out to each and every one of you who have taken the time to download this podcast listen to it be sure to check out all the podcasts on the sportsman's nation podcast network and if you like it leave a review wherever you download your podcast huge shout out to today's guest david hand and uh if you're curious about the product go check out uh slash arrows Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Exodus Trail Cameras, Wasp Archery, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Ozonics, and now Hunter Safety Systems. I tell you guys, um, it's summertime and I cannot freaking wait to go out and check my trail cameras. Like I almost wanted to do it today, but I just put them up last weekend and I don't want to ruin it. I just need to go and do something else. I need to shoot my bow it's July 1st. I'm recording this on July 1st. Monday is uh, July 2nd when most of you guys will be listening to this. And, and what I want to do, I got 60 days until I leave for my archery elk hunt in Colorado. And I'll be completely honest with you. I got to bust ass. I'm going to try to lose some weight. I got to get into better shape than what I am. And, uh, there's only one way to do that and that's to grind my butt off change my diet uh eat healthier which sucks especially when you got cookies and snacks all over the house i think that's it i don't know what else i'm gonna say i'm getting tired i still have to edit this podcast and i gotta do it very quietly because now my office is also a nursery which i gotta i gotta think think of a different situation for that but anyway (laughs) that's not your problem Hopefully everybody has a great week and from myself and on behalf of Hunter Safety Systems, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.